I'm Pastor Danielle, and I'm really grateful for the chance to be with you all and amazed that you all still came even though you fell backwards. So um, thank you for doing that. I was feeling myself this afternoon like it's kind of cold and it feels dark and it feels like I should be staying home. So I was like, well, maybe no one will come. Well, I'm always surprised when you all come. <laughs> such, a, such a blessing. So to the Zoom and in the room, um, thank you for being here and thank you for being Spark. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this opportunity to come together to worship you through the study of your word and to turn our hearts towards you as we open up your text and seek to understand um, and draw close. We pray that we become aware of your presence, of your spirit, um, and your move in and through us and in this place. We bless you for all the good gifts. We bless you for all of the feelings that show up on this Sunday afternoon whether joy or despair, whether hope or discouragement, um, and everything in between, in you, Christ, there is a radical welcome, and all is welcome here. Amen. All right, the title of our message as we jump into John chapter 9, 19, we're well, been going back a long ways, John chapter 19 is we have no king but Caesar. Let's take a look at this passage together. Pilate then took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted thorn branches into a crown and placed it on his head and put a purple robe on him and went up to him saying over and over, Hail, King of the Jews, hitting him in the face. Pilate went outside once more and said to the crowd, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to get you to understand that I find no case against him. So Jesus came out wearing the thorn branch crown and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Look at the man. And when the head priests and the temple guards saw him, they shouted, Put him to death at the stake. Put him to death at the stake. And Pilate said to them, You take him out yourselves and put him to death on the stake, because I don't find any case against him. The Judeans answered him, We have a law. According to that law, he ought to be put to death because he made himself out to be the Son of God. And on hearing this, Pilate became even more frightened. And he went back to the headquarters and asked Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus didn't answer. So Pilate said to him, Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you understand that it is in my power either to set you free or to have you executed on the stake? And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it hadn't been given to you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. On hearing this, Pilate tried to find a way to set him free, but the Judeans shouted, If you set this man free, it means you're not a friend of Caesar. Everyone who claims to be a king is opposing the Caesar. And when Pilate heard what they were saying, he brought Jesus outside and sat down on the judge's seat in the place called the pavement, Gabta. And it was about noon on preparation day for Passover. And he said to the Judeans, here is your king. And they shouted, take him away, take him away, put him to death on the stake. And Pilate said to them, you want me to execute your king on a stake? And the head priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. And then Pilate handed Jesus over to have him put to death on the stake. So they took charge of Jesus, carrying the stake himself. He went out to the place called the Skull, Golgotha. And there they nailed him to the stake along with two others, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. And Pilate also had a notice written and posted on the stake, and it read, Jesus from Nazareth, 
the king of the Jews. Many of the Judeans read this notice because the place where Jesus was put on the stake was close to the city and it had been written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. The Judeans' head priest therefore said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but he said, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Like, write that. He said it. Don't write it that he is. And Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. Now, the passage goes on, and you should go and read it and, and continue on. But in the interest of time and moving through our story, we will stop there. And the title of this message is, We Have No King But Caesar. So let's talk for a few minutes about who Caesar is. Before the time of Jesus, in 44 BCE, there was a guy named Julius Caesar, and even prior to that, that's when he was assassinated, but prior to that, Julius Caesar and Pompey, in 63 BCE, came into the land of Judea and took advantage of some disruption between the ruling family of Judea and this sort of brothers' civil war, and then the death of Queen Salome, and the brothers were warring, and so they went in, and Pompey, who was out pirating around, because every story needs a good pirate, um, came in and with Julius Caesar um, took over this land between. And Julius Caesar reigned as, as sort of like head of the armies for a while. He was really well respected and good at what he did, and he won a whole host of battles. And he started believing his own press. And so Caesar, Julius Caesar, started saying, you know what you should call me? How about call me um, Dictator Perpetuo? And he had little coins made. And he said, you know what else you should call me? You should call me king. Well, I don't know if you know this, but Rome used to be a republic. It was not an empire yet. It, didn't, it wasn't into the dictatorship. It had sort of talked that down. You can go talk to Plato and Aristotle about it and others, okay? So they weren't into dictatorship or empire, but Caesar believed his own press. Julius Caesar did and was ready to go for it. And so a series of things happened um, that kind of made other people think, I don't think this guy's so good. And eventually they executed him. They, they assassinated him in 44 BCE. When they assassinated Julius Caesar, I think the people who took him out, and you remember this is like the etu brute, like the whole like you two friend, all of the go read some Shakespeare. Um, when after they killed him, they kind of thought, well, great, that's the end of that. That's the end of this whole dictator nonsense. So this was the question before Rome in 44 BCE. And remember, Rome is ruling in Judea. So yes, the Judeans and the Galileans are there, the Jews are there, and they still have their own temple, but Rome's in charge. So the question was, would Rome be a democracy or would Rome be an empire? This question was answered in Philippi when the army of Anthony, yes, that Mark Anthony with Cleopatra, also friends of Herod the Great, and Octavian triumphed over the Romans defending the Republic. They won the battle, even though Caesar was dead. They went and fought for Caesar's side, Julius Caesar's side to win. And Octavian then later defeated his ally, Mark Anthony, and became the Roman Empire. Now, Octavian was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And so when this happened, he deified himself as Caesar and as God. And the golden age of Roman peace, Pax Romana, had begun, as it always did, in blood. And it spread throughout the Mediterranean world, 
And it's gospel, and they did use the same word that we use in our Greek gospels, euangelion. The good news, they declared, was that peace came by devotion to the Roman gods and victory in war. And that was the answer to the question, would Rome remain a republic or would Rome become an empire? And Rome became an empire. Now, when Caesar Augustus became the Caesar, he also minted coins for himself that said Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine great Augustus. And he said, you know what, my dad, Julius Caesar, he's divine. We saw him go up. There was the stars, all this mythology around Caesar's passing. So I am his son. So I am the son of the divine. And I'm going to have coins that you in Judea will also have to use. And these coins will declare that I am God. And this is the coin, by the way, that when some leaders come to Jesus, when they're at the temple and he says, hey, by the way, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? He says, show me the coin. And they give him the tribute coin, which declares that Caesar is God. And Jesus says, what? Give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God's. It's a brilliant answer. Nobody can quite tell what he means. <laughs> but you can go back and hear it. We, we do know what he means, right? He's saying this image that's on here, this man declaring to be God is not God. You can give him that coin, but you know who really is divine. So Imperial Rome, this Roman Empire then comes through and they declare that the Caesar, the emperor, the king is the Lord and the God and the savior, the Soter, who brings this peace through Roman victory. And everywhere you went throughout the Roman world, throughout that Greco-Roman world, you saw the declaration and the results of the divine Caesar. And they're seen in fortresses that are peering over into the Temple Mount platform in Jerusalem. Who's really in charge? Well, we're allowed to pretend, but look, there's Rome and they're in charge. We see it in their standards that they would go in and they pushed those standards into the temple and said, hey, by the way, we think your temple's super nice. How about we just bring the Roman eagle in there? Good Jews didn't like that. Got that out, right? They were seen in fortresses, standards, paved roads, running water, theaters, arenas, and temples that Rome was in charge. Now, in the midst of all of this, Pilate is appointed sort of the governor, the prefect over Judea. And Kevin talked a little bit about Pilate last week in that huge, beautiful conversation about what is truth, right? And he gave you some information about the inscription stone of Pilate. And they recently have found a ring that talks about um, sort of in Pilate's name. It's too cheap to have ever been worn by Pilate. It was probably worn by somebody who did things on behalf of Pilate. And they found that down in the Herodium in Bethlehem. And so when we talk about Pilate and what Pilate's rule is there, when in the middle of this passage of John 19, they say to Pilate, hey, if you let this guy go, you're no friend of Caesar. Well, that is actually a title. It's, it's something that was used during that time. So Roman senators and legates and prefects who showed loyal service were given the rank and title friend of the emperor. And these friends received golden rings as a prestigious symbol of imperial favor in addition to positions of power and authority and wealth and honor. So that phrase that comes into this conversation, friend of Caesar, is an official title that had special significance for Pilate. That title was also given to Herod Agrippa I, Herod Agrippa II, and others. During the first 10 years in office, Pilate was able to keep the Judean rebellions at bay. But the Judeans sent many complaints about him to Rome. 
did not like this guy, who's pretty brutal. He spilt the blood of the Galileans. He did terrible, awful things, right? And eventually in 37 CE, so just after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the Samaritans complained so significantly that Pilate was removed from office and ordered to report back to Rome, and he was exiled in disgrace by then the emperor Caligula. He has a great reputation, right? I'm not sure if you know. Okay. So right in the middle of this conversation about who is Jesus and the flogging of Jesus and the mocking of Jesus and everything else, like, hey, if you let him up, you're no friend of Caesar. And these folks know what they're saying. It's political hardball right there in the middle. It's like, if you release this man, then you can kiss your friend of Caesar benefits goodbye. All the things that Caesar has given you, they're going to go. Because, and this is what the leaders there that day in that courtyard conversation with Pilate, those religious leaders, they said, we have no king but Caesar. And isn't that a shocking thing to hear people say? People who are religious leaders. We have no king but the guy in charge right over there. Remember just a few passages ago in John chapter 11, after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, everyone's flocking to go see him, and this is concerning for a lot of people. And so in John eleven forty seven and on, it says that the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, and they said, what are we accomplishing? They asked because they're super upset about this crowd. Here's this man performing many signs. Listen to this. You guys, this is important. Ready? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then what's going to happen? The Romans will come. And they'll take away both our temple and our nation. There's a real fear and concern that if they allow this Nazarene, Galilean, rabble-rousing rabbi to come on in here and stir things up, that the way that life is going for these folks in power will stop being the same. And they don't want to lose what they have. And so one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, by the way, Why is he the high priest? Is it because he's the line of Aaron? No. It's because he paid the most money. Okay? To Rome. So the high priest that year spoke up. You know nothing at all. Do you not realize it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation to perish? And at that point, they just start to see how they can get this Jesus guy taken care of. Tony Campolo years ago, I don't know if you know who Dr. Tony Campolo is, said this. Mixing politics and religion is like mixing ice cream and manure. It doesn't affect the manure much, but it really messes up the ice cream. Thank you, Tony, right? Isn't that true? And we can see that happening right here in the midst of this text and this story. Because you see, when we, as religious leaders, when we attach ourselves to Caesar to benefit ourselves for our own preservation, for our own power, we become friends of the empire. We become friends of injustice. And we become friends of convenience. Because guess what? Power doesn't care about you. Thomas Aquinas said this, it's the nature of earthly power that one power cannot endure at the presence of another power. And so Caesar didn't allow another to rule. Julius Caesar walks in and is like, hey, you know what will work better than a republic? A dictatorship. I'll do that. 
And they went to war over it, and the people who wanted the dictatorship, who wanted authoritarian rule, who wanted the tyranny of that, they won, even though Julius was assassinated. And Rome becomes an empire, a totalitarian regime, and they mix religion and politics immediately. Caesar is the divine. Augustus, his son, is the son of the divine. And we're going to declare that at every gate and every temple and every road and every time you want water or every time you want to have your own priesthood or any time you want to have your own rule, you're going to have to come and remember who's really in charge. And even if you find a way in the midst to think, well, maybe if we just do this, we can kind of keep Rome happy. Let's not Let's not make them too mad. We'll just hand this one guy over. You should know that the empire always strikes back. Or, honey badger don't care. Because just a few decades later, Rome will destroy Jerusalem completely and entirely. And the Jews will be exiled from their own land. In 70 CE and again in 135 CE, So this entire passage, I think one of the questions that we can ask of it, or maybe it's asking of us, who is king? Because at the very, very beginning of this passage in John, we see Jesus made to be the king. He's flogged. We won't go into that. You can look it up on your own. It's horrible, awful. And after that, He's mocked. He's put on the royal purple robe that is reserved for royalty. He's given a crown, but not a crown that any king or any Caesar would ever want. He's given a crown of thorns, and he's mocked and abused and put on the stake. And we should remember in the midst of all of this that there's this phrase, friend of Caesar, Remember, if you don't hand him over, you won't be Caesar's friend anymore. They remind Pilate. And then they say, we only have one king, and that's Caesar. And maybe it's the truest thing they've ever said. But Jesus calls us friend. In just a few chapters before, we talked about this quite a bit, that Jesus said in John 15, this is my command, that you keep on loving each other just as I have loved you. And no one has greater love than a person who lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And I no longer call you slaves because a slave doesn't know what his master's about. But I've called you friends because everything I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me. I chose you. Do you hear how it's all flipped? Jesus flips the whole thing in these discourses. He completely is like, oh, do you want to be my friend? I'm your friend. I call you friend. You call me friend. And you know what that means? It's not about power, and it's not about tribute, and it's not about declaring me even divine. It's about the fact we're going to love one another. And we're going to lay down our lives for one another. I mean, when Jesus says this in John 15, those disciples don't know yet that Jesus is going to be crucified, died, and buried, and resurrected. They don't know the end of the story. So just hear it as they heard it. Their rabbi, their leader, their teacher saying, I want to be your friend. You don't need to be friends with Caesar, with the high cost that that brings. We, together, we've chosen one another, and we will be friends. 
Now, as Jesus is crucified then on that stake, just to remind you of the brutality of this, because I think as we as Christians, we sort of just forget. This is what Seneca said um, just maybe a little bit after the time or during the time of Jesus regarding what the cross was like. Is there such a thing as a person who would actually prefer wasting away in pain on a cross, dying limb by limb, one drop of blood at a time, rather than dying quickly? Would any human being willingly choose to be fastened to that cursed tree, especially after the beating that left him deathly weak, deformed, swelling with vicious welts on shoulders and chest, and struggling to draw every last agonizing breath? Anyone facing such a death would plead to die rather than mount the cross. But in the Gospels... And in our story, the cross is a throne. This is where Jesus, our king, goes. So ultimately, we are being asked this question. Who is king? Who is king? I think that the kingship of Jesus turns everything upside down. And the way of Jesus is anti-empire and anti-nationalism. And no one 2,000 years ago would have ever confused Jesus for Rome. And I don't think I have to say 2 plus 2 equals 4 for you here, do I? There is no way that the way of Jesus, that being enthroned on a cross, that submitting to beating, that laying down one's life for a friend, that not submitting to the empire could at all be confused with, nobody would have confused Jesus with a Roman or with Caesar or his way or his teachings with the empire. Nobody would have done that. The belief that Jesus is Lord and King And the submission to his authority is every bit as foreign to our culture today as it was to those who had known the gospel of Caesar, that good news of Caesar and the empire. How willing are we right now in our own world where the values of Rome reign? How willing are we to live out the way of Jesus? Can you find people who are seeking to build that kingdom that way? To follow Jesus in that way? I have some scripture. I'm going to pass. You guys can pass back to one another. Because when I like to, when I think about the way of Jesus, and I think about how different it is from my own way, how different it is from the way that I am inclined to work, to operate, how we like to throw elbows to make sure we get ours, how we climb the corporate ladder, regardless of who we step on to get there, how we push aside the marginalized even more in order to ensure that our way and our privilege remains the same. How difficult it is for any single one of us to even think that we might have to change any way of life in order for the 140 million people facing starvation in the Horn of Africa to be treated justly. And they're facing starvation because of the way in which we live. Are we willing to really wrestle down and find out the ways in which we can follow Jesus and become more like him? to submit and to seek out his kingdom and his way.
And what does it look like when we do that? Does it look like more throwing elbows? Does it look like more arguing on social media? That's not the way of Jesus. This is the way of Jesus. He loved the poor, I told you. I told you he loved the poor. You start to shout and yell? No? What would it look like if we were the kind of people that started to seek out the way of Christ and seek out that push for that loving one another, for calling one another friend, for doing, I don't know, Matthew 25, right? So let's read this beautiful hymn that Paul gives to the Philippians who are living right in the midst of the Roman Empire, right in the midst of a place where everyone is declaring that Caesar is Lord after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And Paul says this. And you all have this passage in your hand. And what my prayer is and hope is that anytime then this week when you're wondering, well, what might the way of Jesus look like in this moment, in this place, in this conversation, in this dialogue, in this world, in this nation, in this neighborhood, you read this and meditate on it with me. Let's read it together. If then there is any comfort in Christ, any consolation from love, any partnership in the spirit, any tender affection and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness. And being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him even more highly and gave him the name that is above every other name, so that the name given to Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Who is our king? He's the one on the cross. He's the one that humbled himself even to death, even to death on the cross, considering others better than himself. Who is our king? He's the one that Pilate put on the cross and enthroned there and said and declared, king of the Jews. This is our king. His way is humble. His way is sacrifice. And his way is love. Will we follow his way? Spark, we're going to have a time where we are invited to come and join with one another and with Jesus at this table. At this table where Jesus sits and tells us that this is his way, that this is the picture, the symbol of his body, that this is the picture and the symbol of his blood, that every time we come, we proclaim again the crucifixion, the death, the burial, the resurrection, every time we take this.
we proclaim his way, his kingdom. And all are welcome at this table, even the Caesars, even the ones who've been complicit with the empire, even those of us who've forgotten that his way is love. We're all welcomed to this table. Judas was welcomed to this table. All are welcome at this table. So come, all who are thirsty, come and drink. All who are hungry, come and eat. For the table has been prepared for you. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The table has been prepared. All are welcome at this table.